Glad you're all here today. Just a little grandparent news for some of you. Pastor Jordan and Lauren had a little baby on Friday. Uh, his name is Zion, and mom and baby are doing well, and pictures will be forthcoming. Another thing to bring you up to speed on, uh, Ukraine uh, today was given an envelope of about $1,000, just shy. So two girls, young ladies, very young ladies in southern Manitoba, said to their parents, we have to do something. And so what they did is they made these little bracelets, and they went out and they sold them and raised over $1,000 for you, well, just under $1,000. I was just absolutely amazed. So shout out for, for them. I had uh, the opportunity today to talk to Pastor Sergey as well. And uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, we're really tied closely with uh, Ukraine, um, the, the amount of money we've raised. That was good all week. <laughs> the amount of money we have raised is, is, in my opinion, astronomical. And it's getting, it's getting to the people on the ground that need it the most. And, um, and uh, we're partnering with other churches. Uh, got a check from Relate Church in British Columbia for $2,500. Like, just people are finding out what we're doing. They're finding out where the money is going. Uh, my social media, my Facebook, I try to keep people abreast of what's going on, they can see what's happening, where the dollars are going. So I phoned, and Sergey and I talked today, and I just said, hey, what's going on? How can the church, how can we pray for you? His first thing is, we need to pray for Mariupol. And again, if you're watching the news, this, this, this city is literally just getting pummeled. And he says, the other thing is you need to pray for is you need to pray for the pastors. And I'm thinking, well, of course we need to pray for the pastors. He goes, no, Jerry, you don't understand. He says, uh, there's two types of Chechens. There's a Russian Chechen and there's a Ukrainian Chechen. And if you know your history and you know your history with Russia, you know that uh, the Chechen army is a ruthless army. And so there are Chechens fighting for Ukraine against other Chechens who are fighting for Russia. And uh, there's a whole geopolitical thing that's going on there. But the Chechen army, that is, the Chechens who are fighting for the Russian army are targeting pastors now in Ukraine. And so they'll find a pastor in a city, they'll take him out, they'll beat him, they'll cut his limbs off, they'll cut his fingers off. It's hardcore persecution, and there's a religious connotation in there as well. So he says, pray. I talked to a friend of mine in, down south. And of course, much like you, what do you say, Right? The conversation was like, you know, do you pray that Putin gets killed? You know, do we pray that he gets assassinated? I get that question all the time from, you know, people like yourselves. And my answer is that what we pray and we ask God to remove the evil in the world. Remove the evil. And uh, again, we're subject to him. Uh, he's the one who's in control, even when it seems like total chaos. And my friend, as we talked and we were just processing things together, he said to me, Jerry, I, I don't have words to pray anymore. He says, all I can do is go to Romans, it, where it talks about groaning. Because our hearts are so broken for the world. And he goes, then I get asked to pray publicly, and I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do, so you know what I pray? 
end up praying the Lord's Prayer. This guy's been praying the Lord's Prayer for quite a while because those are the only words he has. So you're not alone. You're not alone in your anxiety of what's going on in the world. Sometimes it's just good to hold the hand of your love, embrace your kids, your grandkids, connect with your neighbors. And other times we just got to take that time and pray and ask God to intercede. If you're a guest at Soul, welcome. You see a little bit of my passion. Now, I have to say this. Um, Today, I, I would basically put a PG-13 on, on our message. Normally, we pick a book of the Bible and we walk through it, but this series is a little different. Preaching style is different. Teaching style is different, in my opinion. Maybe not for you, but for me, it feels different. So I just got to say, by the nature of the conversation that we're going to have today, and it's a one-sided conversation, obviously, that will be open at the end, but Uh, today's topic is obviously a major topic in our culture and in, in the church today. Uh, today's life's lesson, I need to say this, it is sensitive. It's deeply complicated. It is filled with emotional issues. And as a matter of fact, many pastors actually don't like preaching on this subject because they're afraid of a fallout in their community. What I've realized is that there's going to be, and there's more, but I've narrowed it down to six groups. There are going to be six groups of people who are going to be listening to me this morning and what I'm about to address. There are going to be those who despise my belief. There are going to be those listening who wrestle with same-sex attraction. There are going to be those listening who have suffered because they have been mistreated by the church because of same-sex attraction. There are those who are listening because they're sitting on the fence of the issue and they don't know what to believe. There are going to be those who are listening who are living in sin, as I define it. And finally, there are those listening who despise or fear people who identify as LBGTQ. So before I go any further, I need to say that, and, and this is what I ask people to do. Take out your pen, your paper, take out your phone and make some notes. And then if you think I said something that maybe offended you, or struck different, be sure to go back and listen to what's being said. The second thing is, like I said, it's an emotional topic. So I would highly encourage all of us just to, to, to keep our emotions together, uh, right? Have some paper, and then we can discuss, see context, and go from there. And do your homework, because I will assign homework in this life lesson. Every single human being who has walked the face of the earth is created in the image of God. Every single human being. And according to Scripture, we all bear the image of God. We are image bearers of our Creator, and so therefore we all, all of us, possess dignity, value, worth, and people deserve. People even those we disagree with deserve our respect. I don't think that any human being, no matter how wrong or how sinful, no matter how they live their life or what lifestyle they are in, should be bullied, should be mocked, should be made fun of. Every human being, even those who may disagree with me about theology or people who don't believe in God, 
Every human being deserves our respect and deserves to be treated with human decency and dignity. My aim today is not to be politically correct. My aim today is actually to be biblically correct as I see it. And so I'm attempting to address the question, what does God have to do with my sexuality? And I approach today with a lot of trepidation because I want to present this actually, this topic accurately because of the complexities about a difficult topic. And today I'm sort of talking to both sides of the issue. So here's my audience. I'm talking to those on both sides of the issue who consider the Bible to be authoritative or somewhat authoritative. In other words, if you're a Christian and you believe that the Bible and what the Bible is saying is applicable and true to you, then this is for you. I'm very clear. I'm not addressing our culture, and I'm not addressing non-believers. They're welcome to listen in, but that's not who I'm talking to. So as Christians, our understanding is what our source of truth um, our understanding is that our source of truth uh, is the Bible, right? Jesus Christ. And we addressed this topic a couple of weeks ago. And aside from what our culture is preaching and teaching, what I've found in my world of Christendom is that the real questions that most Christians are asking are not whether gay sex outside marriage is wrong or whether soliciting same-sex prostitute or sleeping around with several partners is wrong. Because, I'll say this, all genuine Christians believe these are sins according to the biblical definition of sexual immorality, which I'll touch on again in a bit. The real question is whether two men or two women can date, fall in love, remain sexually pure before their wedding day, and commit to a lifelong consensual monogamous union that is blessed by God. So, does the Bible really address and prohibit these types of relationships. I like to think that I stand on truth and I stand on love. And sometimes figuring out how to stand on both is hard work. And so today, some of you are sitting here and you're listening to me, and today you affirm same-sex relationships. Others of you who are sitting here and listening do not. What I'm hoping is that we'll put aside our assumptions and genuinely seek to know what the Bible is saying and not what our culture is telling us or what our feelings are telling us. Now, there's no such thing as an unbiased reading of the Scriptures. There's no such thing. As believers, though, we are to have a biblical worldview. Now, worldview is interesting. It's a set of presuppositions or assumptions Now, if you look at the definition in front of you, it kind of looks crazy and confusing because it is. All right? So worldview is a set of presuppositions or assumptions, which, and these assumptions and presuppositions could be true, they could be partially true or entirely false, but it's something that we hold on to. And we hold on to them either consciously or subconsciously, whether it's consistently or inconsistently, about the basic, basic makeup of a world. In other words, we all bring our baggage when we have a worldview. We all are looking through something. Now, again, like I said, we all bring our, our assumptions and presuppositions to the text. So if you call yourself a Christian, then you understand that Jesus and the Word are one. And again, we went through this two weeks ago, or three weeks ago. We're, we're called to be people who follow the Scriptures. 
And the Bible is the view or the lens at which we as Christians are to look at life. And so now a lot of Christians are going to say that they have a biblical worldview, but when you get into a discussion with them and you begin to ask, what is your view of truth or of life or of evil or of creation? Well, their answers all of a sudden become not necessarily biblical. So in order to have a Christian worldview, we place our trust in the scriptures and what the Bible says as our moral compass and what we defend as true or not true depending on what we find in scriptures. So, last week I mentioned that we live in a pluralistic society, but we also live in a relativistic society. So here, get your philosophy thinking caps on here with me. Relativism says that truth is relative to the individual. According to this philosophy, if there is absolute truth, we cannot know it. Therefore, anybody's claim to truth is valid. And, and this is the world we live in. This will make sense to you because relatives will never say others' truth claims are false. What people will say to you is that you have your truth, I have mine. Now, relatives will not make any absolute truth claims except for all truth is relative, ironically. That's a bit of a joke, but reality. We live in a world, for the most part, that has no absolute standard for life and for behavior. Morality shifts with the whim of the people. The basic standard of behavior is do whatever feels right and whatever is right for you. This runs actually contrary to everything we know about in our world. A relative philosophy of life is contrary to the absolute world that we live in. See, in our world, for example, you have science. Science is based on absolutes. Our entire universe is actually built on something called fixed laws. Laws that cannot be violated without tremendous and far-reaching and even fatal consequences. For example, gravity is something called a fixed law. Now, in a, a relativistic world, you may come along and say, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Awesome. And you may advocate for that. As a matter of fact, you may write a book on that. You can even go on a speaking circuit denying gravity. You'll make nothing, but you can do that. But when you come to the edge of a building and you decide that you are going to jump it off, you will die. Because the law of gravity is not dependent upon what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe when you jump off a building. You won't go up, you won't go sideways, you will go down. You don't have an option in all of this. It's never a question of what you believe. It's a law. It's a fixed law. Think about it. We can send satellites and rockets and people into space. They can actually accurately predict exactly the sequence and of the events that take place, the trajectory of the rocket, the space occupied by the satellite or the space station for that matter or whatever it is. They can predict accurately how it will rotate around the earth and, and then they can predict exactly if it re-enters, how it's going to re-enter, where it's going to go, where will it land, when it will land because everything is built on math. The entire universe is mathematically consistent. It's absolute. 
in its scientific definitions. That's the beauty of it. And so whether you're talking about biology or botany or physiology or astronomy, math or engineering, they are controlled by something called fixed laws. We live then in a world of fixed laws. And yet, strange to say, we want to live in a world morally of relative laws. We want to live morally as if there are no laws, as if there were no rules. We want to determine our point of reference in our own mind. And some people say, well, I'll determine in my own mind what is truth for me, right? This is truth for me. Okay. So in the physical world, we're actually very happy with fixed laws. But as soon as we move into the spiritual realm or the moral realm, we want to abandon anything like fixed laws, but they still exist. You cannot exist without laws in the moral and spiritual dimension any more than you can exist without laws in the physical dimension. Now remember who I'm talking to this morning. I'm talking to believers. So wherever you fall on the spectrum this morning of our discussion, you have to remember that God, our creator, who made the universe, made it made it in terms of physical identity and its moral and ethical identity as well. And he built morality into life. And just as there are physical laws, there are laws in the spiritual realm as well. And the law will go into effect as soon as you put it to the test. And what is true in the physical area is also true in the spiritual area. You can't segment the two apart. You can't say the physical world has laws and the moral world has none. To segment life into a physical dimension in which fixed laws cannot be validated and a spiritual dimension in which they can be violated is an impossible dichotomy. For the same creator who made the whole thing built it all on fixed laws, moral and spiritual. It's all intertwined. Now, the physical laws are very visible to us. We see that easy, like with gravity. But where do we find moral laws? Where do we find the fixed standards of human behavior which, when violated, brings about disastrous results? Where do we find out what is right and what is wrong? We have to ask, has God, our creator, given us a standard? And the answer is yes, it is. And and, and this is where you find it. You find it in the scriptures. You find it in your Bible. The Bible claims the revelation of God in which God delivers the fixed laws of moral and spiritual conduct. It's in his revelation. So it is there. It's in scripture. Now in our culture, we find that we're polarized, right? Come on. Do I get an amen at least on that? We have vaxxed and we have unvaxxed, right? Oh, he's going there. We have masked. We have unmasked. He's going there again. We have truckers and we have sports cars, Right? Oh, you're making fun of this. No, I'm just stating the obvious. We have liberal, we have conservative. And within the church now, what we're finding is these views are polarizing within the church. I've already addressed this before, but with our topic, we have affirming, we have non-affirming. We have traditional, historic, orthodox uh, views of Scripture. We have progressive, uh, um, revisionist views of Scripture. And each of these labels because that's what they are. 
for a person's theological convictions about sexuality are loaded. And they create early barriers to conversations about loving people. They each set up, whether we want to admit it or not, a dichotomy that these are the only two perspectives. So you need to choose. Pick one. Don't you hate that? Isn't all truth relative? Then why are we forcing people to choose? And the larger and more challenging issue is this, especially as believers, because we're living in a culture that says if you are not affirming an affirming church, then it is assumed that you're homophobic. More labels. I don't feel that's true. As a matter of fact, but that's the accusation. But I need to say this before we go any further. I need to say that acceptance doesn't mean agreement. And welcoming doesn't mean affirming. But some don't see it that way. So, there are generally, and I'm, I'm some, making this simplistic, okay? Because some people are going to go... They get really caught up in details. Just breathe and loosen your shorts. There are generally three camps that churches fall into when it comes to this topic of LBGTQ, etc. There's side A, there's side B, and there's side X. A person who is side A is a perspective on Christian sexual ethics typically believes this. Uh, they believe that God makes gay people that God blesses same-sex marriages in the same way he blesses opposite-sex marriages. Side A churches teach from a young age that God made some people gay and some people straight. Regardless, he desires for everyone to enjoy romantic companionship with the people that we are attracted to. And so these churches, these affirming churches, as they would be called, would encourage same-sex attracted children to identify as gay and proudly share with their family and friends. Holding these beliefs typically, though, requires some theological maneuvering. And most side A churches I know believe that the Bible is not binding or prescriptive for the modern context of today. Side A churches will only use the Bible in limited ways, especially when it aligns with a humanist ethic that they believe God has revealed to mankind through human reasoning. So these churches don't talk about what we would call vocational singleness, if I can use that phrase, or supported in any meaningful ways, because why would they? They believe that God has offered marriages as a solution to loneliness, and you can marry whomever you want. So that's one side. There's side B. Side B typically believes that same-sex attraction is not what God intended and is a result of the fall. Side B churches talk about sexuality and brokenness of everybody's sexuality in a young age. And so these churches will recognize that while some people will develop a same-sex attraction, they are still loved by God and have a role in his story. So side B churches encourage same-sex um, attracted children to share early with their parents and with their pastors so that they can learn to steward their sexuality in God-honoring ways. And there is no context for same-sex sexual or romantic activity that God blesses. They're called sins. And so side B holds to the fact that God calls all Christians to vocational singleness or marriage with someone of the opposite sex. 
And these churches are places that talk in theologically accurate ways about celibacy, about marriage, and both celibacy and mixed orientation marriages are normalized, supported, and modeled in the church for gay Christians. Then there's side X. The side X perspective uh, basically makes it very clear that God is against homosexuality but says little more. And these churches hold that same-sex attracted Christians must reject their, reject their attractions and work towards changing those attractions. So if a gay teen, let's say, comes out to his or her parents, they are commanded to reject homosexuality in all forms. And so Christians who continue to struggle with same-sex attraction are challenged to lean into spiritual disciplines and a romantic relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. And these churches don't talk about celibacy or support it in any meaningful way because in marriage with someone of the opposite sex is God's answer to loneliness. So you see there's really simplified three very different views. There's probably more, but I'm just breaking it down to you. Now, the church itself in general has often played an unintended role in the pushing of gay people away from Jesus. The ones who don't kill themselves end up leaving the church. But here's the thing. Most people who are attracted to the same sex don't end up leaving the church because they were told that same-sex behavior is wrong. They leave because they were dehumanized or ridiculed or treated like an other. And when you think about it, people will always gravitate to where they're loved. And if they don't find love in the church, where they're going to go elsewhere. And so we have many people who are still hungry for the scriptures, but they're turned off towards the church. And as we read about Jesus, we see that all sorts of people, broken, sinful, marginalized, clean, unclean, pure, impure, everybody was just drawn to him. Some are befriended in his relationships as we go through the scripture. We also see that some are confronted but all of them are loved. See, this is the polarization of our culture. We, we can't understand that. If I confront somebody, I must not like them. And so the question that we have to ask is, has the church handled the question of same-sex attraction with Christ-like love? Are we sure we understood what the Bible really says about same-sex relationships? And again, I've said this before, this is a highly charged and emotional issue, and I'm not going to give quick, easy answers. You know, we need to work hard. We need to think deeply. I will say that shallow answers to complex issues are often offensive to our God-given minds, and they fail to shape our hearts into being more like Jesus. In the past, some Christians used what are called clobber passages because Christians throughout history have used them to clobber gay people with. And when gay people hear these verses quoted, they immediately think of hate. They don't think of love. They think of abuse and not embrace. They think of ignorance and not understanding. And so being called names and labels and not being seen as an image bearer of the creator, it's painful. And so we have to be sensitive to the painful misuse of texts before we try to interpret them. And after all, we're not just studying a text. We are also trying to love real people with real pain. Now, according to the revisionist Matthew Vine, there are only six passages of Scripture that mention same-sex intercourse. 
Genesis chapter 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. I would simply argue that there are much more that formulate a biblical worldview of sexuality, but for the sake of time, I want to encourage you. This is your homework. Go back online, listen to my life lesson entitled Sexual Immorality at All. Focuses on 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 12 to 20. It was, part, it was called part 10 in that series of Letter from a Friend. Part 10, Letter from the Friend, YouTube. Go back, watch it, listen to it. There I took the time in that message to break down the whole issue. When it comes to answering these questions, we have to go back to the beginning, though. We have to go back to creation and see what God's initial plan is for humankind. Again, we're believers. We're looking at the scripture. The Bible teaches and nature demonstrates that humans are sexually dimorphic. All right? There are clear differences between male and female. On a theological level, both sexes reflect God's image. On a biological level, both are necessary for reproduction and sustaining life. And from here, we can clearly see that God's goodness in setting boundaries for our own protection that limit sexual expression to the context of one man, one woman marriage that leads to the procreation of new life and the formation of families as the most basic building block of a stable and productive society. So open your Bibles. You go to Genesis chapter 2. What do we see? We see that Eve was fashioned as to correspond with Adam in a very physical way. She also complimented him socially and intellectually, spiritually, emotionally. So when God creates Eve, she's created with the purpose of making a positive difference in the world. Ladies, listen to me. Without the presence of Eve as a separate identity, even though all was perfect in the world, God was still able to say when he looked at Adam that something here is not good. And there's Adam, the perfect man, and yet still missing something that was good. The good he was missing when we look at Scripture is actually Eve. There's a beauty about all women. Because you're created in God's image with the purpose of bringing good into the life of others. Do I get an amen from our ladies? Think about that. It's intriguing to think that when Eve was created that she was perfect. She was complete. Have you ever noticed that the Bible doesn't give us the faintest clue to what she looked like? We know nothing of Eve's physical appearance. Was she tall? Was she short? What were the color of her eyes? What was the length of her hair? Did she smile? Did she frown? You know? Oh, this guy? God, really? Do you notice when you read in Genesis chapter 2, we see that the woman is not defined by her appearance. And I think we get all caught up in that, especially in our culture today, but God doesn't. The woman was beautiful because of whom God had made her to be. And so I need to be clear here because we need to understand that in this plastic culture of ours, it it doesn't matter what your size is. It doesn't matter your complexion, and the list goes on. Ladies, you were created by God, and you are beautiful. 
And so not only did God create woman when he took her from Adam's side, right? It's the story of creation. God also created a wife. So Eve was created to be more than woman. She was also designed to be a, what scriptures would call a helpmate to Adam. The woman is a helper matching or corresponding to the man. She is suitable for him, as we see in scripture. Together they make this perfect pair because they are both designed by God to complement one another, to form a perfect whole, one harmonious team, physically and spiritually. The man and the woman are different, yet these differences are designed by God in creation to complement each other, to work together in such a manner as to make them stronger and more effective together than if we're apart. That's been a long time before I actually jumped into scripture. So, <laughs> for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. Well, what does that have to do with anything, Jerry? Well, it's interesting. When you look at this passage of scripture, and most of us just don't even think about it, but you, there's something in there that you need to grab a hold on. And what it is, is that the husband-wife relationship is permanent. The parent-child relationship is temporary. So my question is, why is this mentioned here in Genesis? Because you got to think about it. Work with me. Think about it. Because why is this here in the Bible when Adam and Eve, what? Have no parents. Eve's origin is directly from Adam. And so the union or the bond between Adam and his wife is a union of coming from one flesh, coming from Adam's flesh and becoming one flesh in the physical sexual union. This bond is greater than that between a parent and a child. This is what scripture is saying. You see that? A woman is, of course, the product of her parents as the man is of his. But the original union involved no parents. And the wife was part of the flesh of her husband. And this first marriage then is evidence of the primacy of the husband-wife relationship over that of the parent-child relationship. There's something there. We read, the man and his wife were both naked. They felt no shame. Obviously, how appropriate. We learn that the sexual side of this relationship was part of the paradise experience. Sex didn't originate with or after the fall. It's not dirty. It's not something... Uh, no, that's not what it is. Procreation and physical intimacy were intended from the very beginning. Go to Genesis 1.28. We also we see that sex could be enjoyed to its fullest. It's a div divine plan. Disobedience to God did not heighten sexual pleasure. It diminished it. And so today, our culture wishes to believe that they've invented sex. And that God only seeks to prevent it. The church only wants to prevent people from having sex. It's not true. But sex, apart from God, the bonds of marriage, is not what it could or should be. And here is the divine origin of marriage, which means it's not just a social invention, but rather it's a divine institution for humankind. It was God's plan right from the very beginning. 
I'm going to ask that we keep our opinions to ourselves. God joins a man and a woman in marriage. It's a permanent union. It's supposed to be, right? If you go further into the New Testament, we see where Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Two souls are coming together. Two souls are being knitted together. The Hebrew word for that is called dod, D-O-D, if you want the English transliteration. It means the mingling of souls. It's not two bodies that have come together, but two souls that have come together and touched one another in significant ways that shapes and orientates them in some very specific ways. And so sexual intercourse then is a powerful emotion. It's a spiritual bonding that will always have implications. There is no such thing as casual sex. From Matthew to Revelation, then, we hear this term called sexual immorality. Jesus used it. Luke talks about it. Paul talks about it. Jude talks about it. John talks about it. And the term comes from the root word porneia, right, where we get our term porn. It refers to, when we break it down, to all sex outside the bonds of marriage is prohibited by God. When it's used in Scripture, it's always used in the context of relationships, and that any type of sex outside of the relationship of marriage is not God's ideal. As a matter of fact, it's called sin. Many believe that oral sex, anal sex, masturbation, heavy petting are not part of sexual immorality in our culture today. They are. And so the church has historically taught, we have historically taught for 2,000 years to wait until marriage before engaging in any type of sexuality. Because sexual immorality is dangerous because we commit sexual immorality, we sin against our own bodies. This sin affects our minds. It affects one's mind, it affects one's body, it can affect one's body if we start talking about VD. It, it, it can affect our spirit, our emotions. It can have drastic effects on us. It opens the door to emotional baggage. Sexual immorality, as we know, we can just watch the news. It destroys homes, it destroys careers, it destroys friendships, and it can even destroy one's faith. And one, one person says, well, if, you know, Jerry, if it's so dangerous, why did God create it? Well, I think when God created everything, including sex, he said it was good. However, when the world was stained by sin, sex gained the potential of being very, very destructive. In the confines of a marriage relationship, fulfilling God's original plan, sex is good and it's powerful. It creates intimacy, it creates pleasure between a couple, and it has the ability to lead to procreation. However, outside of that, it is destructive. In fact, you can go to Romans chapter 1 that says one of the primary results of denying God is a distorted sexuality. And this is what we're experiencing in today's culture, and this is why it's such a battle. The world denies God, without question. And therefore, what we see in our culture is that sexual immorality is rampant. But you know what? This was also true for the early church. In fact, Paul calls the Thessalonians to learn how to control their bodies. Because that implies that many of them had no idea how to control the desires of their bodies. And so the pervasive sexual nature of the culture was in the church, and therefore believers 
needed to learn how to control their bodies. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 to 16, some of them were having sex with prostitutes. And what does Paul say? He says, don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Well, where do we get that? All the way back to Genesis. So how do we handle our sexuality? Paul writes to the Thessalonian church and tells them to avoid sexual immorality. Avoid it. He says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18. And, and, and this is startling because with many other dangers in scriptures, we don't get the same type of emphasis in the command. And this is what I mean. In, in James chapter 4, verse 7, we're told to resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from us. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul says that the believers are to wrestle against powers and principalities, which really refers to demons. So with Satan and demons, this is the scriptures talking. This is not me making it up. With Satan and with demons, we resist and we wrestle. But when it comes to sexual immorality, we should avoid it and flee from it. And I think what really what that is saying to us as we interpret it from Scripture is that this demonstrates how dangerous it is. And for many people, what Christianity teaches about sex is, frankly, strange. And maybe that's how you're feeling as you're listening to me pontificate this morning. Another question being asked is, why does God care with who I sleep with? Because Christians are increasingly seen as outdated, restrictive, judgmental when it comes to sex before marriage when it comes to cohabitation, when it comes to homosexuality, when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to transgender issues. In fact, for many people, the issue of sexuality is one of the biggest barriers for them to even consider Christianity. And today, many people are defined themselves by their sexuality. They are who they have sex with. But the Bible doesn't take that view. Let me make a statement that should sit with you for a while. Do you know that your sexuality has nothing to do with whether or not you're having sex? The Bible says that a person is a human being because they were created in the image and likeness of God. Meaning, before you had sex, before you had anything, you actually have maximum value and maximum significance before God. Who needs to hear that this morning? Who cares about all the stuff that's going on in your life, all the stuff that's going on in your head, all the stuff that's going on around you? Can you just, in a worship gathering, sit surrounded by other believers in the presence of worship and take in the fact that you are valuable, that you have maximum value, that you are significant before God, that you're an image bearer. As a matter of fact, you're a ruling creature. If you read on in Genesis, we see that under God and over everything else. Our identity is not in our sexuality. Our identity is in who God is. And that's a whole nother sermon. 
The implications of that insight are absolutely staggering for us. They should be. It means, for starters, that sex is natural for human beings, but it is not necessary. Some of you are going, oh, no, oh, hang on, Jerry. You've, now you've stepped over. Everything else, I'm with you, but now you've stepped over. No, no, no. A person can live a full, blessed, rich, useful, meaningful, God-glorifying life without ever having sex with anyone. Sex is good, but it's not the ultimate. And to many people in our culture, that would be the most surprising thing that the Bible says about anything. The Bible says that marriage is good, that sex is good, that singleness is good, that celibacy is good. They're all actual precious gifts given according to the wisdom and the timing of the Lord for his glory and for our everlasting good. And so the world holds the historic Christian view of sex in contempt. It considers it prudish, naive, and even repressive. Our culture looks at the church and says that we are backwards. And it's not surprising that in this time of growing biblical illiteracy, so few people have any idea what God thinks and says about this subject of sexuality. And again, people who would identify as historic Christians believe that there is a right sexuality and a wrong, sorry, that there is a right and a wrong as well as certain boundaries in how we handle our sexuality. And the Bible actually elevates sexuality as God's gift to us that is both sacred and mysterious as long as it's played out in God's design. I remember using this illustration before. It's called the pickle principle. I don't know if you remember that. In order to make pickles, what do you have to do? We put cucumbers in a brine solution with vinegar and spices and water. And after the cucumber soaks long enough, it's changed into a pickle, right? And most of us were pickles. Why? Because we sit in the brine of a sex-saturated culture, absorbing its values and belief, and it changes the way we think. And most Christians are pickled today, one way or another. Because we're believing and acting exactly like everybody else who has been sitting in the brine of culture, that this culture is actually hostile to God and hostile to the scriptures. And our culture includes the belief that sex is the ultimate pleasure, that sex is God. The message of our media is that there is no greater pleasurable available than the almighty orgasm, and that it is, that's the right of every individual to have this pleasure. And culture has moved unabashedly towards the mockery of the Christian worldview. And another aspect of this culture is that no one has the right to deprive anybody else of this greatest of all human pleasures, that no one has the right to tell anybody else what is right or what is wrong, right? Well, if it's true to you, then go ahead, especially about their expression of his or her sexuality. And I hope you're tracking with me this morning. Because in spite of any lack of scientific evidence, the belief persists that people are born gay and that makes it okay. And yet for Christians, innateness doesn't mean that something is permissible. Being born a sinner doesn't make sin right. Being born, uh, I think what we have to do is we have to point people to a far more important claim. 
Regardless of what is true or not true when you were born, Jesus says that what? We have to be born again. It doesn't matter if you think you were born an alcoholic, you have to be born again. It doesn't matter if you, were, if you think you were born a liar, you got to be born again. It doesn't matter whether you think you were born a porn addict, you got to be born again. It doesn't matter whether you think you were born with any other sexual sin struggle, you must be born again. And where do we get that from? We get it from the scriptures. And so where do you land on the issue? This is, this is what you have to figure out this morning, is where do you land on the issue of biblical authority? And before you answer any questions, you have to come to terms with how you will decide to live out the scriptures. Why? Because you're identifying as a Christian, so how do you live out the scriptures? How do you handle the text in front of us today? Because when it comes down to it, life transformation is Christianity 101. The changed lives of the converted pagans uh, was a very powerful witness in, in the gospel in Corinth. But the change had to be permanent. The change had to be complete, not temporary and not selective. They were different now, and the world was watching them. Again, go back and, and go through letters from a friend. The media today is the defender of sexual freedom and the force behind the sway of popular opinion. Word games have now entered the vocabulary. And I'm not talking wordle or knuckle. The media holds relativistic convictions, which are supposedly prejudice-free. Well, the church is pictured not as something which holds absolute convictions, but rather is branded with all types of phobias. So anybody, any questioning of sexual free, freedom is then castigated as a phobia. So then the church now becomes labeled with many derogatory terms, such as homophobic and, and many other things. And when it comes right down to it, our emotions are perhaps the most popular basis for us making choices today. After all, how can anybody argue with how you feel? I'll just say this. If feelings are a good standard for decision-making, then you'll never have to come up with a better defense than I did it because I felt like it. It doesn't take a whole lot of what-if scenarios to realize that it there are major problems with that type of approach to decision-making. And so Christians are trying to deal with the trying social issues of our times. And to have to respond to people who accuse the church of being hateful and repressive. And we have a logical problem in our culture, and in our culture that champions, ironically, the word tolerance but actually doesn't practice it, especially when it comes to Christians. I mean, in case you didn't know what tolerance was, tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. We also live in this autonomous culture where you, the individual, are a law unto yourself. And yet in an autonomous culture, one must allow people to voice their opinions even if you disagree with them or think that they are wrong. 
And unfortunately, these rules do not apply equally, especially to Christians. And what we are finding is, as soon as people disagree with your answer, you find yourself quickly engaging in outrage culture, cancel culture, name-calling, and labeling. Most of the times, it's done from behind a computer screen. Very few people want to have a face-to-face dialogue. They just want to... Cancel. And sadly, this belief has found itself into the church. I've stood up here many times. I've made a statement or I've taken a stand on an issue. And I speak to the church today, right? Christians get so bent out of shape. And then I get an earful. I've had a few times where people looked into my face and said, you know what, you're wrong, or you capitulated to the government, or I don't agree with everything you teach or do. Really? That's a shock to my system. I am so sorry. I thought everyone agreed with me. Oh, my goodness, people. Newsflash. I don't agree with everything you say, or do, or believe, or support either. But I can live with you. You don't see me running away from you or putting a barrier in the parking lot telling the outside crew, don't let them in, they think differently from me. Or they're interpreting the Bible in a very liberal way. They don't belong here. I'm not looking for little Jerry's. There's, there's not a chance. And I don't think anybody else wants little Jerry's either. As a matter of fact, our little grandson and John Ritchie and I, we share the same bloodline. John, can you imagine what our guys are thinking in the dressing room that our sons has a mixture of you and me playing hockey together? That's going to be scary stuff out there. I don't want that. I just say this. Everybody is welcome to Soul Sanctuary. Everybody is welcome to Soul Sanctuary. And here's my, here's my challenge, and if a band can come up. Come and learn. Come and be challenged. Take me to task scripturally. I, I, don't swallow everything I present to you on a Sunday morning blindly, because this is not a cult but let's get hungry and study the word together. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us because you know what? Truth doesn't fear a challenge. And so as we look at these passages, as we look at others, let us remember something. This topic today is about real people. It's about truth and it's about love. And we all have people in our lives where this is their story, and so we need to learn how to navigate these relationships. Or maybe today, you're sitting here, and it's your story. I've heard Pastor Jordan use the phrase a few times in my office that clarity is kindness. So Jordan, if you're watching, I'm quoting you. So I want to be clear that to all of you, to those who are watching here present and watching online, that I believe that the central component to the message of grace, the message of compassion, the message of love and truth 
is the overarching framework of God's plan for sexuality that's laid out in the opening chapters of the Bible, and that plan is carried through the closing chapters of the book of Revelation. I deeply believe that the Bible teaching, that biblical teaching to reserve intimacy for marriage between a man and a woman is still relevant for today. And the fullness of sexual expression was created to be expressed only within the covenant of marriage. And there's no amount of modern science or situational ethics that can erase the fact that your sexuality is about more than your body. Our sexuality, people, is not our soul. Marriage is not heaven, and singleness is not hell. As a pastor of this church, I can speak on behalf of the leadership that we hold, Soul Sanctuary holds to a traditional, historic, orthodox view of marriage, which was designed by God to unite a man and a woman. This is not a new position. This is the position we have held since 2004, the moment we started. And if I was to pick one of the three labels that I described earlier, I would say that I feel very comfortable falling into side B. Because I have to constantly remind myself when I'm dealing with people that if I love God, then I have to love people, and I don't have the choice to choose when. And so when it comes to having a discussion on this topic, both sides have to resist turning militant and have to learn to humanize and not weaponize. And unfortunately, in areas that are emotionally charged, sometimes the loudest voices are the most damaging. I realize that many people may not choose who they are attracted to, but they can choose how they respond. And while we affirm and teach from a traditional sexual ethic here at Soul, we respect, hear me loud and clear, because I know some people are going to walk out of here and they're not going to hear this, but we respect all people's rights to follow their own paths. But here's the hard part. Christians really have no more or less of a right to tell other people how to live their lives than anybody else. But we all have ways we think the world should be. And we all have the right to try to contend for these views respectfully. I'll say this. I accept all people with love and genuineness, regardless of what their view is on anything, if it's different than mine. I can put an arm around a person who has a different view of marriage, different sexual expression. The hardest part is a different view of politics. That, that one, that one, I got to draw the line. But I can do it. I gag, but I can do it. But I'll tell you this. God gives us the most sacred gift the prerogative of choice. But God will not give us the privilege of determining a different outcome to what the choice will entail. The consequences are bound to choice. And so when I look at the sacredness of marriage, any change from the historic point of view is a departure from the biblical mandate. Having said that, the Bible commands us to love, and we, the church, must show love and tenderness towards people, 
who don't have a sexual desire for the opposite sex. We have no right to act hatefully or arrogantly towards this particular sin because, again, my worldview says this, especially when it's obvious to all of us. So prayer, concern, and compassion do far more in this area than condemnation of people. And for many, sexual identity is a huge struggle. It's a huge struggle for our kids today. The Bible commands us what? To love. The Bible commands us to love those that we even disagree with. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so our responsibility as a church is to do right, to seek justice, to defend the oppressed. And this applies to all people, all people, regardless of skin color, regardless of sexual preference, regardless of their religion. Our privilege is to love. And only God can change the heart of a person. And God is the ultimate judge. And in a pluralistic society in which we live, let us as Christians then live proudly as salt and light and learn to love one another and let God be the judge over us all. And so here at Seoul, I'd like to think that we are accepting where God has you right now and we are willing to journey with you. When I say we, I am also saying me. And we are going to share what we believe and we are willing to hear what you believe. My biggest frustration with Christians, I have a lot. My biggest one is when people get choked with me and leave. Oh, let's pick up our ball and walk away. Come on. What's this about doing life together? How many times do I have to say that? Can we agree to disagree? I've laid it out where we stand, but we're still supposed to be family. It's a journey together. And I'm not suggesting that I need to bend my belief, but at least I can have the opportunity to hear where others are coming from. I'm not close to that. And I trust that the Spirit will do His job because He does it better than we do. Church is about people. When we collect money for places like Ukraine or any of our other mission partners, we're global all over the place. Do you think that we sit there with the money and say, do you sign on our statement, like dotted line before I give you any help? No, it doesn't matter. Every Sunday, these doors open up and some of you walk in here and you're so broken and you're keeping it to yourself. Why not just share? Why not come alongside? Why not let us pray for you? Why not search the scriptures together? Are we open to let the Spirit move? Let's pray. God, I'm amazed that you simply spoke the word and the universe was formed out of nothing. At your command, you called forth. You gave names to every star in the sky. You fashioned every sea and the shore. You gave life and breath to every creature. You took time creating men and women as a potter molds the clay. You caused this world to keep on turning, the sun to keep on shining. You are almighty God. And I'm amazed that although you are almighty, you nevertheless care tenderly for each and every one of us. You are our shepherd. You take us up in your arms. You carry us close to your heart. You know each of us by name, and indeed your name, our names are written on the palms of your hand. 
You know everything about us, even the numbers of hair on our head. You know where we go out and when we lie down. You know what's going on, even what we want to say even before we say it. You know us completely. You know exactly what we need at any given time and what's best for us. And so what do you do? You, you work all things together for good. And every experience we encounter is shaped and ordered by you, our all-wise, ever-loving God for our good and for your glory so that we might become more like Jesus. Surely you lead us into green pastures beside quiet waters. God, you restore our soul. And so as we are in your presence, do your work of soul restoration in us. God, shepherd your flock and recall those who stray, encourage those who doubt, rescue those under the devil's attack, and feed us all upon the bread of life, the word of God. And God, cleanse us all, all of us from our sins, our failures, and may we leave this place rejoicing. Glad that we had met with you, knowing that you go ahead of us, that you'll be with us, and that you'll never leave us or forsake us. In Jesus' name. Stand with me. Thank you for being patient. Nature Thai, the one who blessed, extend his hands for a blessing. Those receiving the blessing did likewise. If you're able body and help us stack after a while, I'd appreciate it. The chairs. Soul Sanctuary, may God be beside you when you walk. May God be in your voice when you talk. And may God be in your eyes when you see. May God be in your ears when you hear. And may God be in your heart when you pray. May God be in your mind when you think. And may God be in your hands when you touch. In every sense, may it be that God is with you.